Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Hmm. <laughs> ah, the delicious zing. Today is Tuesday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. I saw somebody noting on social media that Cinco de Mayo this year falls on Taco Tuesday during the lockdown for a pandemic named after a Mexican beer. <laughs> I thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> um, although Cinco de Mayo, much like St. Patrick's Day, is a occasion for uh, partying and drinking for sure, it doesn't hold tremendous resonance in the Hispanic communities around here. <clears throat> There's usually um, some essays every year on how Cinco de Mayo is a misunderstood holiday and culturally appropriated and all of these things. At any rate, it's um, it was kind of like, you know, when people were commenting on, because of the pandemic, that Ireland had canceled St. Patrick's Day, like that was a big deal. And, you know, St. Patrick's Day just isn't that big of a deal in Ireland. It's really a, a celebration among the, the diaspora, right? You know, it's the all the expatriate um, next generation Irish who is kind of celebrated as a nostalgia for home. It was an interesting thing being in Dublin for Worldcon. I was on one panel that was about the Irish diaspora and about um, writers of Irish descent, like myself. I did go visit some of the uh, ancestral homes uh, while we were in Ireland and towns. And <clears throat> so it was about the you know, writers of Irish descent writing about, writing fantasy based on Celtic mythology. Um, on various questions like that. And the guy who was the moderator for the panel was an Irishman, I think, a Dublinier. Um, and he was talking about the statistics, you know, of how many Irish emigrated from Ireland. And I'll mess up the numbers now, but, you know, it was ooh, a lot of people, like a third of the population um, left during the you know, post-potato famine and mid-potato famine, the early 1900s and so forth. And that's certainly when my Irish ancestors left and came to the U.S., late 1800s and you know he was talking about how bereft that left Ireland and you know there was a very strong sense both spoken and unspoken that because our ancestors had left we had no right to claim that mythology anymore that we had forsaken it and I could see, I could see the that perspective. He, he also had the idea that um, that we treated 
the mythology as a joke and didn't have proper respect for the you know traditional Irish um, creatures of darkness that we you know he he sort of had the idea that all Americans viewed leprechauns as the lucky charms leprechaun you know as if somehow the Madison Avenue advertising has uh, is an accurate reflection of how Americans think. I mean, there would there would be a lot to unpack there, and I won't because I want to talk about something else today. All appearances to the contrary. Anyway, I had made the point on that panel, and I don't know if anybody really listened to me because it was not a popular opinion, but. You know, I thought, I said, in some ways, I felt like we had intensified the Irish mythology because it was what we had left of home that, you know, our grandparents would tell us stories about, you know, the, you know, had my grandfather had all of these books. My grandfather, Pat McGee, you know, had all these books on Ireland and, you know, and would tell me stories. And there was an intense reverence for the uh, Irish mythology and stories, uh, almost made more so because it was romanticized with that nostalgia for the thing lost. And and it was interesting that the Irish seem to be so involved in the idea that they had been abandoned and, you know, that this had deeply impacted the country, which, of course, it did. But I think they had the idea that the people who left just went on to live wealthy, happy lives and never looked back. And I don't think that there's a sense that there was always this deep mourning for having left Ireland behind. And I know that David and I, David, who was also of Irish descent, um, we both really looked forward to going to Ireland because it felt like a pilgrimage to the homeland, and we had expected it to feel like a coming home, uh, which actually it didn't, oddly enough. But again, that's a story for another time. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the agent thing today, and I know I talk about agents a lot, and those of you who are not writers or aspiring writers, I have apologize, but you guys um, are always good about saying that it's interesting to hear things about the world of writing and so forth. Um, so yesterday, an agent, Janet Reed, posted a tweet saying, and it was clearly a tweet posted in aggravation, where she said, do I have to say this again? And I am paraphrasing here. Uh, do not contact my authors and ask them what it's like to work with me before you have received an offer of representation from me. And a lot of writers picked up on this, and I did too, and I did a tweet thread last night, which I, you know, was kind of unusual for me, but I felt like I needed to, I'd done a couple of replies on other people's threads, and I thought, well, I want to say a little bit more about that. And then I want to talk about it a little bit more today. Um, 
you know, and Janet is an agent who has been around for quite a while, and she has a lot of Twitter followers, like, you know, close to 35,000. And part of it is because she used to do, and she still has it as her Twitter handle, um, the query shark thing, where she would talk about queries and break them up and, you know, talk about what worked and what didn't. And, um, and sometimes it was, you know, not very kind. And I should caveat this by saying, although I've met her a couple times, I, I don't really know her. And from what I understand, she's a, an effective agent. I, I couldn't really say one way or the other. But anyway, there was some understandable dismay at her saying this because one thing that a lot of writers advise, including myself, is to do your research on agents before you query. And one of the pieces of advice that we give is to ask that agent's current authors. So this really flew in the face of that, that you should somehow wait until after you had received an offer of representation to contact her authors and ask what she's like to work with. And I really don't know exactly where she was coming from on this. Um, she said, I saw in a later reply where she said it was more nuanced than she could explain in 240 characters and that she would do a blog post on it. So perhaps that's coming. Um, I did see, you know, you're always going to get some people replying to tweets like that who are attempting to sound good to the agent and curry favor. And I don't blame anyone for that. You know, I've spent my time doing that too. But they were like, oh yeah, I would never do that. And oh, I would never want to impose on you. And, and there were even some authors, and I'm not sure if they were her authors saying, oh, yes, I can't have people emailing me and asking me questions, which really took me aback because I thought, how ungenerous. <laughs> Frankly, um, yeah, I think that's ungenerous. And I don't know what they're imagining. Um, I saw several other authors weighing in saying that, yeah, sometimes people email and ask them about their agent or grab them at, you know, at conferences or that sort of thing. And it happens maybe a couple times a year. I mean, this supposed avalanche of inquiries has never happened to any of us. And and I am someone who often mentors based on that. Um, you know, when I get assigned mentees from CEFWA, almost always they want to talk about querying agents or changing agents or dealing with agents because it's something I've offered to talk about and there's a need for it. It's, there's a huge need for it. And, okay, so here's the thing is that the advice that agents will give you is not always the same advice that other authors will give you. Because while agents are a terrific asset to the industry, and I'm, I'll say that flat out, I, you know, I'm on my third agent. I'm with Sarah Younger at Nancy Yost Literary. I think Sarah is a fireball. She is fantastic. She has done really good things for me. Um, I absolutely believe that an agent is an asset to an author's career if they are a good fit. But 
the while an agent is represents the author's interests the objectives of agents are not always perfectly aligned with an author's goals um, they should be in good alignment for you to have a good fit because if the author's career does well the agent's career does well but agents also have another set of priorities they are working with multiple authors uh, they have their own career to think of they have their uh, relationships with editors to think of so for instance if a agent sells five different books to an editor and has a very productive relationship with that editor then if you as an author have a problem with that editor the agent will fight for you to an extent but they're unlikely to completely blow up the relationship with that editor for you because it could sabotage their four other clients and and that's not a good or bad thing that's just the realities of business and i think people sometimes forget that this is about business right and an agent um you know a, a good agent thinks about business in a very um i'm trying to think of the phrase i want in a very sharp way in a sharp and dispassionate way and that that's part of their job so what an agent wants from authors especially authors who are not their clients <laughs> is very different from what's best for authors and you know this has changed even in the what well now like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to date myself you know nearly 15 years that i have been um you know in the in this particular pool when i first started out it was before the big crash around 2008 2009 and agents held so much power and they wielded it with um rather ruthlessly and this is not you know here's our hashtag not all agents but you know a lot of them did and many writers became agents because it gave them more power and and i know absolutely of several people who did this you know that they got tired of being the supplicant at the table and becoming an agent let them be on the power side of the equation and they loved that everybody likes being on the power side of the equation and there are the and that changed a whole lot when things really crashed and i imagine it's going to change again but there was a time when you know agents would be at conferences and they would turn their name tags around so you couldn't see who they were and there were all of these rules about how you could and couldn't approach agents and you know it was almost like they were uh, a kind of royalty you know with that kind of etiquette around it and that changed a whole lot when agents especially when self-publishing took off and agents became a little bit more of the supplicant at the table um and they 
were a lot more active out in the conferences. And it was good to see. It was like, okay, yeah, you know, we, we should be on a little bit more equal footing. You know, we are not the peasants to your royalty. And again, I should say that this is an all agents, but there were a few that were just terrible about this. So part of querying an agent is finding someone who is a good fit for you. And I know you hear this all the time, all the time, but it's, it's so key and it's, it's difficult to um, explain all the nuances because a lot of times you just don't know until you've been through it. It's kind of like you don't know who you want to be married to until you've actually lived with someone who was awful, you know, and you're like, okay, no, this is definitely not compatible for me. Asking the existing clients of an agent what they're like to work with is partly how you find out. You know, it's very simple things like how often do they, you know, do they, how fast do they respond to your phone calls and emails? That's a, a perfectly legitimate question that you can ask an author. And I could tell you that one of the things I love about Sarah is that she's incredibly responsive. And that's important to me. That's one of my things is if I want to know something, I want to know it within a reasonable amount of time. I don't expect an instantaneous reply. Although I know if I, if I had an emergency, if I need an instantaneous reply, I could actually get it from Sarah. I could call her and she would answer the phone. Um, I don't abuse that privilege. She responds to my emails quickly. And I come out of corporate America, so I have that kind of um, sort of that timeline sense of, of how long does it take to reply. And there are agents, and I know this is very true because I have friends who have gone through this, you know, who their agents don't reply to them. They just don't get back to them, sometimes for months. So... I can see how an agent would not want necessarily, especially an agent who doesn't get back to their clients very quickly or, you know, whatever. I can understand that they would be like, I don't want my authors gossiping about me. And it's like, well, guess what? Tough. Because it's not gossip. It's passing information from writer to writer. And we are we absolutely have the right to discuss the pros and cons of various agents. And one of the things that she had put in this tweet was, if you do this, then I know I will never want to work with you. And I found that really problematic because that's an incredible power play. It's an attempt to control the behavior of someone who's not even her client. And... You know, it's it's not fair to authors. It's um, it's an attempt to keep them on the supplicant side of the table. That here is a list of etiquette that you must follow, um, even though I don't even know you yet. And then the other piece of this is is who who are these authors who are running and telling their agent? oh, this person emailed me to ask what it's like to work with you. And then she adds it to some list saying, well, I'm never going to work with that person. I mean, maybe there's more nuance here, but I don't tell Sarah about everybody who asks me about working with her. First of all, it's none of her business. Second of all, Sarah doesn't want to know. What am I going to like send her a spreadsheet of, you know, like everybody I talk to and what I said about her? 
Sarah doesn't need to know that. Um, it would be a distraction for her. And yes, even though I love Sarah and I think she's the perfect agent for me, I have occasionally told people that I thought she's probably not the right fit for them. And I give them very specific reasons for that because I know how Sarah works. And if there's somebody, an author who's not going to be um, comfortable with the way Sarah works, then that's not, neither one of them would be happy in the relationship. That's not um, any kind of meanness or what have you. That's just basic business. It's figuring out a good client fit. So, so there could be more follow-up to this, but I just wanted to talk about that a little bit more. I think um, absolutely ask authors what it's like to work with their agent. Please do. And absolutely, if you, and I know that this is not always easy to discern if you are not intimate in the community, but if you know that an author was previously with an agent and left them, then feel free to ask them why they left that agent. Um, be prepared for, you know, spewing and keep in mind that maybe the agent fired the author. Uh, but that's why you ask a lot of different people. And yes, occasionally you're going to meet an author who is an asshole to you and, you know, will puff up with pride and say, I don't have time to talk to you. And fine, whatever, you know, keep that in mind. Don't bug them again because clearly that's, you know, no fruit there. But most authors are going to be generous with this information because that's how we got our agents in the first place. Um, I'm going long, but I feel like this is important. Um, I think many of you know that I met Sarah at RWA because uh, my good friend Grace was thinking about signing with her. And that was because Grace's and, and my friends, um, Gordon and Ilona, who write as Ilona Andrews, uh, they were with Nancy Yost Literary, and they thought that Sarah would be a great agent for Grace. And I was at the RWA National Convention. Sarah was there too. Uh, Grace asked me to find out about her because I didn't know anything. And so, and Sarah said later that I interviewed her for Grace, which I think is funny. And I initially um, balked at that. And then I realized she was actually right. <laughs> I mean, it was over like martinis and cupcakes, but still, I just wanted to get a feel for what Sarah was like. And that's what we do. That's what we all talk to each other. Um, and it's, it's harder if you're a newbie because you do have to do these things like email the author out of the blue. And really a gracious author is going to be kind and reply to you. I just don't understand someone who would like go tell their agent about you and <laughs> I, I, I won't rant there further. Um, you know, this, this is how you gain a kind of entree to what can be a close-knit and incestuous community. Um, find the people who are willing to talk with you frankly. And, and we are out there. So, um, and, and for those of you who are just readers, you know, it kind of gives you an insight into what can be kind of a, a strange and, and uh, 
yeah, just kind of a weird world of, of the writerly thing. Um, you know, like in academia, the fights are fo- so fierce because the stakes are so low. Uh, the, the power battles can be sometimes perplexing. So I am going to get to work today. Uh, First Cup of Coffee is part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network, and you can find other podcasts you will love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And I will talk to you all on Thursday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.